0: Sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally.
1: Welcome to season two, episode sixteen of YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their political conversations in colors other than red or blue and the home of the world's largest taco. If you're new here, welcome. And we don't have tacos, but if you like what you hear today, please share it with one friend you think would like it too. The independent media movement grows only by word of mouth, folks. Now, earlier this year, Joe Biden signed an executive order to form a commission responsible for exploring potential reforms to the Supreme Court, and that commission's findings are to be made public next month. While the stated goal is seeking reforms to restore legitimacy to the court, a fair question to ask is why that legitimacy is threatened in the first place. And to answer this question. I have assembled a crack team of smart people to take me to school on the Supreme Court, what reforms we should seek to improve it, and how our view of the court stacks up against history. And I'm starting the series with Gabe Roth, founder of Fix the Court. Fix the Court is a nonpartisan group dedicated to bringing transparency and accountability to federal courts. And while partisanship is definitely a problem, I learned... It turns out that it's really only the most visible one in a larger issue plaguing the judiciary. Listen and learn, folks. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. When I was kind of, you know, thinking about everything we had discussed, you know, I dug a little bit more into your background. You have a lot of like advocacy in your background and i'm curious what got you into that oh i just really didn't like broadcast journalism
0: so i went to WashU for undergrad graduated in 2004 was a political science major Mm -hmm. but also ran the tv station there for about a year and a half so sort of straddling both worlds policy Politics, law advocacy, and and, and and journalism, and all my friends were going to law school, so I had to be different, and I decided to go to broadcast journalism school. And after I did that, I worked in a local TV station, which is what most people do after after grad school or for their first jobs, even without grad school in in the biz. And local news is tough. I mean, we we were owned by Gannett, which is just not a very nice company, and <laughs> they cared more about infotainment than actual hard news. And it was if it bleeds, it leads. And there was yeah. just a lot of, and it was. This was in Jacksonville, Florida, which you know, a city of a million people, definitely more cosmopolitan than it is given credit for. However, not very cosmopolitan at all. But I just didn't didn't love it. And during grad school, the journalism program at Northwestern has a quarter in D.C. So I got to interview members of Congress, I got to go to rallies on immigration reform. And so I, I got really plugged into that scene via uh, the journalism that I was doing. And, and I got tired of journalism after not even a full year, I was like, you know, what? I'm gonna move back to DC and initially interviewed for jobs in, in journalism, but then got a job doing advocacy at a firm that had different clients so was sort of like consulting and just, you know, decided to do that for the subsequent decade
1: or so of my career. I, I feel like that might be a standard path where people get into journalism? Oh, for me, like, you know, I I never had that sense
0: of urgency or responsibility, to be honest, you know, I'm very much more an incrementalist. And, you know, instead of fighting about a million different changes that will never take place, let's figure out what is achievable tomorrow. Ironic running an organization that's advocating for term limits of the Supreme Court. But that was like, totally an afterthought when we started this seven years ago. And now it's like what everyone thinks about my um, organization. But but yeah, I have always wondered, always like telling stories and wanted wanting to learn about different cultures and different people and thought journalism was a great avenue for that, but found that, you know, working in advocacy for, you know, Guantanamo prisoners who just ended up there without having actually committed crimes against the United States of which there were several uh, working for dreamers who were brought to the country, quote-unquote, illegally, but through no fault of their own because they were kids, working for people who just wanted to make it easier to vote. You know, I, that, to me, and figuring out you know, marginal ways to get improvements there, that really spoke to me more than another shooting in Jacksonville tonight. Like, I just, you know, that, that just wasn't cutting it for me. And, and I felt like, you know, some of the things that I liked about journalism I could do more effectively in the advocacy world.
1: What made you start Fix the Court? Like, what was the original mission? Yeah, I mean, the original mission was, it was really
0: from the that advocacy work and how it intersected with the Supreme Court. So when I was doing this work, I had clients that were marriage plaintiffs, like same-sex couples that were marriage plaintiffs in Maine or in California or voting rights plaintiffs. And they were suing in federal court for their rights, for their right to marry, for their right to, you know, not have to jump through a thousand hoops to vote. And these cases made it to the Supreme Court, or if they didn't make it to the Supreme Court, some of the ancillary cases made it to the lower federal courts. And everyone that I worked with had assumed, okay, we'll just be able to watch this on TV, these court cases. And it turns out that that is not the case. You are not able to watch the Supreme Court on TV. You're not able to watch lower federal courts on TV by and large. And so I started something called the Coalition for Court Transparency to try to change that back in 2013. But after having all these events, trying to get cameras in the Supreme Court and realizing the the, the reticence, the reluctance from the justices there. It was so funny. I was watching, what's that show on FX? American Crime Story Impeachments. Um, you know, oh, yeah. And Ken Starr's a character there. And and Brett Kavanaugh's a character there. And it's funny because, you know, I had, I've, through through that advocacy, I was able to meet both of these individuals because Starr is actually really in favor of cameras in the Supreme Court. So I flew him out to D.C. to do an event in the National Press Club to talk about why there should be cameras in the Supreme Court. And Kavanaugh was on a case in the D.C. Circuit, so the court that he was in before the Supreme Court, that was the first of many cases that the D.C. Circuit live streamed. So the audio was live. So he was, it ended up being an abortion case, actually. But Merrick Garland, I wrote to Merrick Garland, I said, hey, Judge Garland, like you should live stream this case that Kavanaugh and a few other two other judges are on, and he wrote back within hours, being like, "Okay." And from here, from then on out, there's been live streaming in the D.C. Circuit, which is often mm-hmm. seen as like the second highest court. So you know, it was just funny watching them in a totally different light, talking about you know gross sex acts committed by the president and a White House intern. But yeah, after doing that event with Ken Starr and and having other conversations with advocates. I realized that it wasn't just this issue of no cameras in the Supreme Court or no live streaming in lower courts that made the judiciary so opaque. I wanted a member of Congress's financial investments, a list of them, which they're required to put out every year with federal law I, to get a judges or a justices. It was almost impossible. If I wanted to know, you know, their trips, their travel around the country, who's paying for them to be flown around the country members of the Supreme Court, all these perks that they get, who's hosting them, what uh, gifts they are getting. Almost impossible to find that out. There, There's no code of conduct that the, the Supreme Court was following. If they had an event at a local college or rotary club or bar association, maybe we'd never find out about it. So there's just such a black box around what the justices and really the rest of the federal judiciary, but I started mainly with the Supreme Court, why it's called fix the court not fix the courts you know uh, there's such a black box around what their outside activities are that you know if we have an institution that's making these monumental decisions which by the way the founders never imagined right the idea that that healthcare policy voting policy who lives and dies all these issues are being decided by nine people in robes in DC is not how things should be happening right there should be a constitutional conversation not congress can't do anything president's pretty ineffective except in matters of war Let's leave it to Scotus, so that's what's happening now and nowadays, so if that's the case then we we should really know who these people are, their backgrounds and their ongoing activities that could potentially impugn them if they are doing things unethically
1: and so your focus is just then on the Supreme Court when
0: I started yeah I mean i it was called Fix the Court. I think that was the URL that was available at the time. But yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely all the courts. And frankly, we've had more success in the lower courts than we have at the Supreme Court. Every lower court live streams their hearings. The Supreme Court does now too, but that's more, I think, pandemic related than anything else. Yeah. You know, lower courts are creating judicial wellness committees, which is a body that ensures that the judges aren't losing it cognitively. Uh, Supreme Court doesn't have such a committee. The lower court, they have conflict check software. So it doesn't really work that you know, 100%, but there is a software system that will help them based on their list of conflicts, based on the list of parties in a case, say, you judge, you know, this is IBM versus Smith, but actually it's Smith is related to, you know, your wife's cousin, and that's a conflict. And so you can't hear this case, no such higher level digital system exists in the Supreme Court. So I think, you know, lower courts are definitely doing a better job, though, they still have a ways to
1: go. I think the one thing I picked up from our last conversation was the fact that these cases that we see before the Supreme Court, they wind their way through the lower courts. Exactly. So in theory, there could be a zigzag of conflict of interests or, or a variety of conflict of interest going on. Along the way up the chain. Oh yeah,
0: that that happens all the time. I mean, and and sometimes we don't even know about till years after the fact. There was just a story in the Wall Street Journal that we worked on uh, that came out actually a late September is when it came out that found that 131 federal judges over the last decade sat on 685 cases in total in which they had a financial stake in one of the parties. that's Mm. insane right like there's clearly something wrong with like judges you know they said oh i didn't know the rules i didn't realize like if my wife had a trust and that that trust included ibm stock that i needed to recuse her bullshit you know the rules it's not paying that closely attention you're not updating your conflicts sheet it's just not something that you take that seriously which as a federal judge is ridiculous so you know we're, we're we're working on some laws that'll that'll change that to make sure that judges stock transactions and their financial disclosure reports are, are posted online contemporaneously, not several years after the fact, if at all, and not online, which is the current current situation. So, you know there 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 are definitely a lot of challenges when you look at these these cases because we don't know who's who's done what and where, and 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 we just the more information will help us you know have faith that our judges and justices are acting based on the law and not based on their own self-interest
1: Get, getting back to what they're required to do you know how many how much law or regulation is there around judicial behavior and and how much is sort of a code of ethics sort of an honor system yeah, so
0: a lot of it is an honor system they don't there is not a robust Great. internal ethics office that exists in the judiciary Executive mm-hmm. branch has the Office of Government Ethics and has staffed with 30 people helping ensure that they're following the laws. And in the legislative branch, you've got a Senate Ethics Committee and a House Ethics Committee. No such thing exists in the judiciary. There are a few committees here and there that deal, you know, there's the Codes of Conduct Committee, which has 15 members and honestly don't even, you know, based on some of the recent lapses, I don't even know what they do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there, there's no like, and they, and they all have other jobs, right? The Codes of Conduct Committee is comprised of 15 judges who are all full-time federal judges. So it's like, you know, maybe not their top priority, but mm-hmm. it should be someone's top priority. So, you know, there are, there are federal laws. After Nixon resigned, there was a movement, a good government movement in the mid to late 70s, where something called the Ethics and Government Act came out and it said all judges need to fill out an annual financial disclosure report that lists some of their finances, their conflicts, some of their spouse and dependent children's finances and potential conflicts, any outside income, any honoraria, any boards that they might be on, any large debts that they might have, and basic stuff. We're not saying like, please list your address, please list the private school that you send your kid to, like all personalized privacy-based information. You don't even have to include it. And if you think you may have to include it. You can request that it's redacted. So it's like really basic, basic stuff. And the judges, yeah. so after this law passed in 78, judges sued the U.S. government or themselves. or I don't even know who. It was a very confusing case. But the judges sued to not have to follow this requirement. Like the judges said that this is too much. It's too much to know who the, our who finance. No, like luckily a group subset of judges at some point said, no, like that's bullshit. It, you can fill out this very, very basic information. Yeah. But the problem is is that these forms are just, you know, we're several years behind. The latest that are out are the 2018s. And as you've noticed, we have no information from 2019, no information from 2020, no information from 2021. And even if we got that information, I don't have full faith that it's 100% accurate, right? So for example, I spent some time doing public information requests About the Supreme Court justices, right? If you're a Supreme Court justice, you're constantly being invited to go to to law schools across the country. And guess what? Some of those schools are public schools, which by definition means that they are public institutions that are subject to public records law. So I was able to ask the University of Rhode Island and the University of Kansas and the University of Georgia hey, did you have any email conversations with the justices about the trips that they took there? And it turns out that like Justice Sotomayor never reported that she may or may not have gotten a block of 11 hotel rooms for free from the university for commencement weekend in 2016. That just never made her financial disclosure report. Clarence Thomas never bothered in his 2018 report writing that he got a free flight to the university of Georgia or the free flight and free hotel to the University of Kansas. So even if these reports are filled out, that's really just like step one to ensuring that the, that the judiciary is following their ethical requirements. And the second thing is, is that there's a personal hospitality exemption that I'm working very hard to, to reduce. If like your niece's yeah. spouse's, you know, grandma, or even just like a close friend invites you out to like a fancy dinner, and you can just say, oh, it's personal hospitality, we're buddies. And if, if that person then turns around and has a case in front of your court, you're not required to recuse from that case which is ridiculous because you clearly have an interest in it if that man or woman has just given you a fancy dinner or a free hotel or maybe use of their Lamborghini. I don't know. But the point is that there are a lot of loopholes and the rules that are in place aren't uh, being enforced. And that's what we're trying to fix.
1: So do you think the problem is Corruption or just appearance of corruption? I
0: think, it's, I think it's mostly appearance of corruption. I'd say it's probably like 80-20 okay. appearance versus actual corruption. I think, you know, I don't want to impune every single federal judge. And there are, you know, nine Supreme Court justices, about mm-hmm. 180 lower appeals court judges, about 680 federal trial court judges. Then you got another mm-hmm. 900 judges that are either bankruptcy or magistrate judges. And then you got se- senior judges, which is a form of semi-retirement. And you got another four or 500 of those. So you're talking about 2,000 odd folks, you know, mm-hmm. most of whom are following their ethical obligations, but enough aren't that we need to ask questions. And even if they all were, we needed to ask questions. It's part of being in a democracy. Yeah. That's part, of, you know, if you have life tenure, which all the judges I've just mentioned have besides bankruptcy mm-hmm. and magistrate, they have long terms and are not part of Article 3 of the Constitution, but that's, you know, inside baseball. But if you have life tenure, then you should have some basic levels of accountability
1: and that that's what that's what we're trying to do and i think most americans would agree with that i guess one of the things i'm i'm wondering here you know as you're talking is so what is there any accountability right now for judges who've either lost it or judges who have exhibited blatant conflict of interest like is there any sort of system of accountability at this point or is it very loosely enforced yeah it,
0: it, the problem is, is that it's loosely enforced and it's mostly judges judging other judges right i'll just give an example so uh, there's a, a judge in South Carolina who was the the county attorney for Charleston County and he got mm-hmm. an appointment right at the end of the Trump administration so he left his job as a county attorney and as part of his severance deal he got a 200 Fifty thousand, two hundred thirty, two hundred fifty thousand dollar check, and part of that was an agreement that he continued to offer advice—not legal advice, but advice—to the county. And like, yeah. you can't really do that if you're a federal judge. You can't have another job. You're more than welcome to have two hundred thousand dollars of taxpayer money as severance. I mean, yeah. I would vote out the people who did that personally because I think that's a lot of money. Yeah. But you know, that's if that's the agreement, that's the agreement. And you know, if he was in a White Shoe law firm, he'd probably get ten times that. Before he went into yeah. the federal judiciary, so I wrote a letter to the to the overseeing body, and I said, "That's you know, let, let's try to get him to rewrite that contract. I don't want my federal judges mm-hmm. double dipping or having a second, you know, a, a, a side job. Federal judges are allowed to teach at a law school for their side job, so long as it you know only constitutes a certain amount of hours and a certain amount of dollars every year. But that's pretty much it. And they can like write books. I think that's right. that's the other thing they can do on the side, but they can't, you know." offer advice to the county of Charleston. So I filed a complaint and you know it's it's making its way through the through the system. But it's the same it's the same process. The problem is that, you know, it's the same same process as if, you know, I witnessed you know, sexual harassment or even a sexual assault in the judiciary. I would still file a complaint that is then mm-hmm. reviewed by one judge who then sends it to a panel of other judges, who then in the process of that can send it to a second panel of judges to investigate it. And then the second panel goes back to the first panel and then decides if there's any uh, punishment. But the problem is is the punishments are very small. It's like censure or go to rehab or, you know, have uh, sensitivity training. The only real punishment is impeachment. And in like the history of the country, only about a dozen judges ever since our founding, I think it's 15 have been impeached mm-hmm. and removed from office same process as impeaching a president the house votes on it and the senate would would vote to convict only about 15 so we have all these judges who like have committed sexual assault who have committed mm-hmm. sexual harassment who have said racist and misogynistic mm-hmm. things in court and at, at the end of the day it's other judges determining whether or not that behavior is appropriate and by and large they'll yeah. just sweep it under the rug and the process is such that complaints are anonymous. The adjudication of these complaints is anonymous. When an order comes out that says Judge X did, you know, sexual harassment, it'll actually, it'll literally say. Well, actually, the last one I read said Judge A. They're using oh. this okay. the alphabet that now. But yeah, they're moving you know, around. They're That's like, cool. eh, You know, there's so many judges it started at X. You know, eventually we're gonna double A AA and triple A, and you know, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But there's just a lot of opacity around that, and it is there's not an outside body. There's no special counsel in the Department of Justice, there's no inspector general, there's no Equal Employment Opportunity Commission avenue for these complainants to go to. And you know, it's 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 ridiculous. And it's a very closed system and it chills court staff from actually lodging complaints. Because if they know they're lodging a complaint against a judge or even a superior in the courthouse, they know they're going to see that person. And they know that judge's buddies are going to be the one adjudicating that concern. So one of the things that that we're working on right now is to change that system to say that, okay, the complaint system is beyond messed up. But at the very least, let's open up some avenues in federal court through change of venues, through new federal laws and harassment and retaliation and discrimination that say, if you're a courthouse employee, you have other remedies than just dealing with your local judges adjudicating that that complaint.
1: I think the other thing a lot of people don't realize is how long it takes for a case to work its way through. Oh, case. absolutely, that's you know right. It's you know the
0: average time to from the time a case is filed until it gets to the Supreme Court, for example, is six to eight years, and mm-hmm. you know that's true for a lot of other different cases but you know it's not just the supreme court so and with judicial misconduct complaints too i mean some of the misconduct complaints about this you know misogynistic judge that i was thinking about i mean took four or five years to get through the process and that's just unacceptable because during that time they're still in the courtroom if you're accusing a judge of being being racist let's just say that and Mm -hmm. in the entirety of that happening the the case the the complaint process takes a couple of years. Well, h- how many litigants of color will will have gone through that judge's courtroom in that time? How many attorneys yeah. of color will have gone through that judge's courtroom in that time? And so, you know, it, it would almost you need to file complaint on complaint on complaint, and you know, mm-hmm. it's just it's just not cutting it. I mean, ju- judges a lot of times do retire to avoid the misconduct process, but again, the way the law is written now the complaint just disappears after they retire. So the, all the investigations stop. So we don't even know why this is happening. And that's also a big problem that we're trying to fix is saying, okay, you resigned because you sexually harassed 15 women. The investigation shouldn't stop because you're no longer a federal judge. We need to know how this happened, why the culture of mm-hmm. silence persisted, and how we can assure that something if something like this were God forbid to happen again, we were able to, we'd be able to nip it in the bud early on based on what we've learned through our investigation.
1: And do you think too, like when whenever people talk about the court, the at you know lay people, it's really more about the partisan makeup. It's really yeah. more about who's appointing the judge. Is
0: that a mistake? No, it's it's getting worse. It's a it's a big problem. Oh, you right. know, I was we we're talking about the the abortion case the other day. There's a big abortion case being argued yeah. at the Supreme Court on November first, which is after the airing of this podcast. The way it got to the Supreme Court was the law passed in Texas that's outlawed abortion after six weeks of pregnancy and the U S department of justice sued and they got mm-hmm. a judge who was appointed by president Obama. So based on that, almost everyone thought, okay, the law is going to be deemed unconstitutional. And it was, and then the law was appealed to the fifth circuit that oversees Texas and the panel is randomly drawn and two of the judges were appointed by Republican presidents. Maybe, actually, maybe three, but definitely a majority of the three were appointed by her. So everyone was like, okay, the law is going to be back on. And it was. Yeah. And with the Supreme Court, six Republican appointees, three Democratic appointees, we know, we're fairly certain what's going to happen, at least maybe not in the Texas case. This, the Texas case is just so insane that, you know, I, I think there's going to be, you know, room for for that to be deemed unconstitutional at the Supreme Court level because there's also this Mississippi case that outlaws abortions after 15 weeks. And I think that's what the, you know, the court might just incrementally say, okay, Roe v. Wade is overturned, but we're not going to go with a Texas rubric. We're going to go with the Mississippi rubric, which is 15 weeks. But regardless, what I described in the lower courts where you basically know the outcome of a case before it happens based on the appointing presidents is ridiculous. Yeah. The law should be the law. And Just depending on which side no. you generally align yourself with, that yeah. shouldn't be outcome determinative. For a case, there should be the law. I know this podcast is about you know not 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 red or red or a uh, blue, but but if the law is blatantly unconstitutional, it should be overturned. End of story. There's not this you know Republican appointees or even Democratic appointees twisting themselves in knots to say, okay, you know what, maybe it's okay we ban Muslims you know, it's like during, during the president, during presidential, you know, maybe it's okay that women who don't even know that they're pregnant, not be able to get the reproductive care that they need because Mm -hmm. we don't care about ectopic pregnancies that could kill the woman. We don't care about rape or incest. Like, come on. Like these are sort of like basic human dignity type things that you would assume under the fifth and 14th amendments and just general, you know, constitutional and, historical jurisprudence would be agreed upon by all comers, but that clearly is not the case. And unfortunately parties are incentivized to find younger and younger judges who are more and more extreme in order to, to lock in their views of the law for 30 or 40 years while they sit on the bench when, you know, it would be nice if we had more consensus picks.
1: You know, I've got a chicken or egg question for you on that too, because, you know, as I was thinking about this, what I was wondering is, are the judges partisan for the purposes of getting themselves appointed? So, are the judges partisan for the purpose of appealing to a more partisan polarized Congress or president, or is it a case where they're just as ideological as the folks in office appear to be, and they're getting selected due to their ideologies? that's that's a tough question. I, I think, people when they're
0: coming up through the ranks are are careful to choose certain associations and to align themselves with certain organizations or positions that will signal to future presidents where they stand with with the goal of getting appointed but at the same time like you have all these judges like Kagan worked in the Obama administration Toledo Worked in the Reagan administration and Bush administration. Yeah. Roberts worked in the Reagan administration. Thomas worked in the Reagan administration. So, you know, a lot of the, the our current justices have these political backgrounds. Kavanaugh worked for in the, in the Bush administration. So, as did Gorsuch actually. So, if you're a top level law student, then you clerk for a judge or a justice, and then you go into maybe public service, you either teach for a couple years at a certain law school or you work at the Department of Justice, and then you go to a white shoe law firm. And then, you know, you join the Federalist Society or the American Constitution Society or the ACLU, and you speak at these events, it's sort of like, you know, checking off boxes. I don't know when that really changed per se, right? I think that, you know, the argument could be made that, you know, 100 years ago, when it was just a bunch of white Christian guys who are on the Supreme Court that were less ideologically. Mm -hmm. But again, the Supreme Court 100 years ago was was upholding Plessy v. Ferguson and separate separate but equal, you know, so there's the thing that I don't that I don't get is that at some point, people have decided that the Supreme Court is supposed to be like the savior of American democracy, the savior of our rights, and how we can express ourselves as Americans. It's like the total opposite is true. Like, just because Brown v. Board of Education Ending separate but equal was decided correctly it doesn't mean that that wipes away Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott and Citizens United and Bush v. Gore and a hundred other decisions that have just been awful for American jurisprudence and rights. You know there was the the, the sterilization cases. I mean I could go on, but for some reason it's oh, like oh we yeah. got you know Supreme Court helped to segregate schools. Supreme Court didn't overturn too many of the civil rights era cases, Supreme Court has maintained a balance test on abortion. Supreme Court has only decided one presidential election, oh, they get a lot of credit. When, you know, it's not the last refuge for the, the downtrodden. It is it is the opposite. You know, there's still cases on the books. You know, the Korematsu is technically still on the books. That's the case that upheld Japanese internment during World War II. Yeah. The insular cases are still technically on the books. Those are the cases that called people living in, Puerto Rico and and other Caribbean islands and and even you know the, the Philippines because that was a U.S. territory for a hot minute called them savages like those cases and their progeny are still on the book. so you know I, I don't know exactly when things change where where justice has got more political I think it's probably to your earlier point part and parcel of our pol- you know nowadays national politics becoming more more polarized and you're just going to get more polarizing justices but You know, uh, I think that of all the things, you know, the polarization is really only second in terms of the the issues I have with the Supreme Court. The first being it's just has a terrible track record of doing anything good for the country.
1: Forty percent, folks, that's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party bigger than either of them in terms of voters. Sixty percent. Is the number of Americans who feel Another major party is needed Both are a signal Something's wrong And both are a signal Americans are looking for something more And that is why You listen to You don't have to yell Now nothing's going to change Until we open up the two party system To real political competition And in the right numbers We can make this happen So here are two ways you can help Number one If you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. I used to hold that opinion that these folks were sort of the high priests of constitutional law. And then, it's funny, one of the first issues I covered on this podcast was the gun Mm -hmm. debate. And what I realized, if you go back far enough in Supreme Court history, what you'll see is that the, the Second Amendment was actually used is almost a proxy for some other battles. So it was used to degrade civil rights. It was used to establish rules for interstate commerce during the FDR era and it's only now that the second amendment has actually been about whether or not you can own a firearm or not. And I think to t- touch on something you said earlier, it does seem like the courts are more of a legislative tactic if you yeah, will. I'll absolutely you know, like so so maybe like so the Texas law for example could be legitimately they felt it was going to go into effect or could just be the fact that they know this is going to work its way through the courts and eventually force the Supreme Court to rule on Roe v. Wade. Correct. Oh yeah, these are the trigger laws. Absolutely, I think that that's a big
0: part of the strategy. Knowing that you know Congress could pass a women's health act, they could pass a law codifying Roe v. Wade, and it would be very hard for for the Supreme Court to overturn that law. They could theoretically but, but it, it would make it a lot harder. Is it harder to overturn a precedent? Is it harder to overturn a, a law? The strategy is to get the Supreme Court to have the last word, but the way the Constitution is set up is that is not how it was created, right? It should be a conversation. Mm-hmm. Congress passes a law or the, the, the president has an executive order. Or there's some other executive action. Maybe the court overturns it. Maybe the court asks to change it, whatever it is, and then changes are made. That's basically stopped for all intents and purposes. It used to be that you know that last time there was like during the time that Guantanamo was being set up, there were these military commissions, and how do you try detainees at Guantanamo? And there was the Military Commissions Act, and then there was sort of this conversation with the courts and Congress at the time, and then the laws were rewritten. But since then, there's been like maybe two or three. Like, this used to happen dozens of times a year, that or maybe not dozens times a year, dozens of times a congressional session that you'd have these laws yeah. that were passed. But like no one legislates anymore right? The budget, the, there oh, hasn't yeah. been a budget, an actual budget passed in, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. We're just doing these continuing resolutions. But yeah, the Supreme Court is a su- super legislature. That is the strategy. Everyone knows these abortion cases, we're going to get there. And because Congress has its hands tied and can't really do anything of of substance, yeah. everyone knows that's what's, what's happening. And so that's why, you know, it behooves the Senate to have as partisan an operative on the court as possible.
1: So much worse than I thought, Gabe. So much worse than I thought. So we talked a little bit about increased transparency in ethics. What are some other reforms that you feel would be the most important? Yeah, I mean, I
0: think we got to end life tenure at the Supreme Court. I think that, yeah. you know, it's bad enough to have politicians in robes deciding every issue of import, you know, as we mentioned, life or death, environmental law, mm-hmm. healthcare, voting, immigration, executive power. But having these individuals there for 30 or 35 years as it's becoming the norm is is ridiculous. There's no reason that, first of all, there's no reason that they alone can do the job, right? I mean, everyone was like, I mean, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, when she was, you know, a few months away or a few years away from dying said, "Who? I was a few years, who could President Obama appoint right now who could replace me? And I was like, well, I don't know, like roughly 200 law professors I know, like, I'll, you know, it's, I have a Google spreadsheet of of law professors who are, you know, well versed in constitutional law that I stay in touch with on these issues. Yeah. I mean, do, do you need that? It's, it's, it's a Google sheet. I'll just, I'll, I'll share it with you. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think there's just Hubert and Scalia too. I mean, he was there for almost 30 years. Kennedy was there for 30 years. Stevens was there for 35. Breyer's been there for 27. Thomas has been there for 30. Just a hubris saying, oh, only I can do it. Bullshit. A lot of people can do the job. Actually, all 179 appeals court judges who are just one level below the Supreme Court pretty much could do it. There's like one or two that I'm like, eh, probably not. But you know,
1: 177 <laughs> yeah. of them
0: could do the job. Yeah, And so I think that having a you know, any life, ten- like there are term limits for Congress, right? They're called elections. If you don't like your member of Congress, mm-hmm. you can vote them out in two or six years, right? It's hard. In- incumbency is very strong in, you know, and in- 80 or 90% of incumbents win, but there is a process by which we get rid of the the baddies. There is no process like that in the, in the judiciary. Every other constitutional democracy that has been set up since ours, save like Iceland and I think somewhere in the, Denmark, Denmark have either term limits or Mm -hmm. a mandatory retirement age or some combination thereof. And so, you know, there's no reason that justice should serve for life. I'm totally fine with them serving in the judiciary for life. They can do what David Souter, former justice, is doing right now or what Sandra Day O'Connor, former justice, used to do, which was finish your time on SCOTUS, after which you go back to a lower court. And serve out the remainder of your days there. And so, you know, 18 years is the number that we've come up with. It's it's well, we didn't really come up with it. Actually, it's been discussed for probably three or four decades now. But you add a new justice every two years, there are nine justices, nine times two is eighteen. So every non-election year, you'd have a new justice added to the court. And over time, it's my view that you know the Supreme Court would become less powerful, it'd be less entrenched, you'd have to compromise on your positions, knowing that you're never more than twenty four months away from a new justice coming on the court. And you would reduce the power of these individuals to make these just incredibly impactful decisions. They really mm-hmm. have no business making. So so term limits is a big one. It's we've got bills in Congress, we've got supporters on the Biden presidential SCOTUS commission, which I testified before. And so I think that wouldn't change everything overnight, but it would do it would do two things. One, it would show Congress that Congress can actually impact the Supreme Court, Congress has tons of authority under the Constitution to set the judiciary's budget, the number of judges there are on all the courts, their term, what type of cases they hear, when they hear cases, where they hear cases, when they have to retire, when they don't, you know, or when they may can't, not have to retire, but when they can retire, what their salary is, which can't be diminished under the Constitution, but what their starting starting salary, like all these different powers. So there's no reason they couldn't change. The job of justice to 18 years, stay on the judiciary for life, per what it says in the Constitution, life tenure. It doesn't say that. It says during good behavior, but that is understood to mean life tenure. After 18 years, rotate off, go serve in a lower court, or come back to SCOTUS if someone suddenly dies. Like, that's fine too, right? There's like three ju- retired justices sitting around for the 14 months in between Scalia's February 2016 death and Gorsuch's. April 2017 confirmation. Any one of them could have stepped in and become the ninth justice, and so uh, that's what the bill would do. That's what our, our plan would do. And hopefully, it, it gets a little bit more traction as this Biden Scotus Commission report comes out on November 15th. So, I think I think that's that would be a big thing. That would be a big change, obviously, but it's one that, according to every
1: poll that we've ever seen, a majority of Americans support. As you were talking, this is something I, I've thought about and. You know, it seems to me that if we look at the Supreme Court, getting back to your, your, I guess, the popular characterization, as we described, of these folks as almost infallible in terms of their interpretation or the last stop. You know, it it seems to me that, you know, really the role of the Supreme Court has always been to provide maybe a slower-moving reflection of popular opinion, You know, if you want to look at the House of Representatives as the most reactionary in the Senate right in between, and in a lot of ways, as I'm hearing you talk, you know, it really sounds like, you know, this podcast was really designed to address some of the issues of polarization in Congress and polarization in the presidency. And it really sounds that this has kind of eaten its way to the slowest moving, most stable body in government now, in a yeah. way. It's yeah. only
0: going to get worse. And, and, you know, I think that... Is
1: it?
0: You know, like for the first 200 years of the Supreme Court, even longer, you'd have judges, justices who would be appointed by Republican presidents, but Mm -hmm. maybe they would side with the quote unquote liberal viewpoint and you'd have vice versa, right? Kennedy was fairly conservative, appointed by Reagan. But he had libertarian views on same-sex marriage, on abortion, which sometimes in practice would side with the liberals. Souter was appointed by George H.W. Bush, would side with the liberals. Ford appointed Stevens, Republican president, liberal justice. Kennedy, liberal appointed Byron White, generally conservative justice. So this has happened for much of this. And, you know, we can even go further back, but I won't bore you with the details. This has happened for much of the Supreme Court's history. That is not going to be happening anymore. There will be no swing, more swing justices. There will—I mean, technically, there's mm-hmm. not. Like, there will be one in the middle, but that's yeah. not going to. And right now, it's Justice Kavanaugh. But in general, it's great. That is not going to to happen. And, and you 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 are going to know where all the justices stand. And yeah. you know, as bad as the filibuster is for democracy, federal judicial nominations was the one place that it sort of made sense that you needed to have somebody that could garner 60 votes, garner more than just a bare majority. And, you know, if they're going to be roadblocks put up, like, you know, the Democrats did in the Bush era and Republicans did in the Clinton era and in the Obama era, yes, okay, it, it makes sense to go to a bare minimum. But it's unfortunate that we're at that position, and I think that it's not unreasonable to want the justices of the Supreme Court to be confirmed 98 to nothing like Antonin Scalia was, and not with only 50 or 52
1: votes like Barrett,
0: Thomas, and Kavanaugh were.
1: And so if I've been listening to you talk, and I'm scared shitless (laughs) over the state of the courts at this point in time, what are some ways either I can support Fix the Court or just support the mission in general? Yeah, I think that
0: one thing that people can do is just get to know their local federal court right? If you live in Houston, that's the Southern District of Texas. Who are the judges there? What is their background? What are they doing? When cases are appealed from the Southern District of Texas, where do they go? Okay, the Fifth Circuit, that's based in New Orleans, though. Judges there, you know, they're, they can sort of sit wherever they want, but mainly they meet in, in New Orleans. Who are the judges who sit there, right? If you're in Massachusetts, at the, at the District of Massachusetts, okay, who's the chief judge? How long is he or she serving? Who are, who are the judges of the first circuit, which is where cases from the district of Massachusetts are appealed? What are the main issues? What are is some interesting cases? There are reporters that that cover the federal courts there, and so Kimberly atkins Store being being one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, she she writes she's more from WBUR, but you know there are there are reporters to so start following them online. Start reading their articles and and pay for local journalism. So you know, if there's a paywall, just, just freaking yeah. pay it. So so I think that's one way that people can, can get involved. Another thing to do is to install the recap browser extension. If you it's if you want to read a case in the federal judiciary, if mm-hmm. you want to read a filing, it will cost you 10 cents a page, which is bullshit because reading things on the internet generally, if it's a government filing, should be free. It is our government does our taxpayer dollars funding this website and it doesn't cost 10 cents a page to read a static piece of text on the internet anymore. It might yeah. have in the mm-hmm. in the eighties when this, when this program was thought of. So if you want to look up a case, there's something called court listener, which is part of the free law project. Pacer backwards is recap. So Pacer is where you have to, where you get all the filings, where you have to pay attention cents a page. If you, you have to sign up for Pacer with the username and a password and a credit card because they're going to charge you. But if you find a case that you're interested in following and you have the, this browser extension, it'll go to a court listener website and it'll say, okay, oh, look, someone's already downloaded the case and you can read the filings for free. So it's like a little shortcut to get around paying these exorbitant fees. So that's something that you the, can do.
1: The Napster of the judiciary.
0: Yeah. Right. And then, and then the last thing is, yeah. you know, fix the court has an action center. So fix is our website. Mm-hmm. Click on action center on the right. And you can see, you know, you can write a letter to your congressman saying, I want more transparency around sexual harassment in the judiciary. I want term limits for the justices. I want my local court to live stream arguments. And because the judiciary won't fix itself, our focus has changed to Congress. And just in this session, there are bills to put cameras in the Supreme Court, bills to live stream every lower court argument, bills to make PACER free, bills to require judges file transaction reports every time they sell a stock during the year bills to put their financial disclosure reports online and there's a mm-hmm. bill that would change the entire way that the sexual assault rubric of complaints and judgments is handled in, in a much more modern and best practices and EEOC c compliant type of way so look at look look up for these bills go to congress.gov and search a lot of them are mentioned on FixTheCourt.com and write your members of congress they they, they read their constituent mail. They have people that on staff that is their sole job. So, so it gets to them. And, and they do. And so we want to be sure that that members of Congress are, you know, a lot of times focusing, unfortunately, on the crisis of the day. But these are endemic ongoing crises. And, and we need to remind them from time to time. And, and we have tools that that can do that.
1: I know we've gone a little over time. I've got one more question for you, and then I then I want to let you go, kind of getting back to something you said, which is, I, I think a lot of people don't understand that members of Congress do legitimately read their yeah. mail. They do legitimately read their email. And if you reach out to them, they will respond. And I think the question I have for you, or the final question as as an activist, is— is it really just a matter of people being very persistent and consistent with their outreach to Congress over these issues that they care about? Is that is that is that enough for your average person just sitting down, you know, your average person who cares about an issue? Is that enough for them to at least make some kind of a dent on think, an issue? That's well, I mean, I think.
0: Look, the 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 most important thing is to be sure that you're writing your own Congress person. You know, I know that.
1: Not hate tweeting Ted yeah, Cruz or that something like that. That, that.
0: Yeah, do anything. And I know you know yeah. that you know Senator Warren and Senator Markey have have judiciary bills. Uh, and you <laughs> know, talking about Massachusetts, have a lot of issues with both of them. But you know, Markey's got the add four justices to the Supreme Court because why the hell not, Bill? Which you know, we've just spent an hour talking about how the courts are shitty. So the idea that <laughs> let's get four more of them. Yeah, that'll that, help. That you know, that's uh, the, the problem is judicial supremacy. And by yeah. adding justices, you're only encouraging more judicial supremacy. And I know that, mm-hmm. you know, and it, to me, it's, com- it's sort of the same thinking as, you know, w- when Trump was elected, he's like, oh, Roe v. Wade's going to be overturned automatically. Like that's not how shit works. And there mm-hmm. has to be case, you know, uh, briefing and and mm-hmm. you know, hey, the abortion case, you know, from the time Texas Texas wrote the bill to the time it went to the Supreme Court is fairly quickly. But you know we don't know. This this case could be decided in June. It could be decided two years from now. They could reargue it. You just never know. Similarly, having four justices on the Supreme Court doesn't automatically mean that like the fact that you know forty percent of Congress is climate deniers is going to negate their power. Like no, that's not yeah. how any of this works. So you know to me to me it's about ending judicial supremacy and only Congress can do that, not by arbitrarily adding a certain number of folks to the judiciary, but by enacting the laws that it absolutely under the Constitution has to enact. So, you know, and you can disagree with me and you can tell Ed Markey, hey, I want to add four justices. Like, that's fine. I get there's a shit ton more money around court expansion mm-hmm. than there is fix the court. And we can talk about that I don't know why that is on a future podcast. <laughs> but you know, and, and Liz Warren's bill is, 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 you know, would ban judicial judges from owning individual stock, which I think is very interesting. I don't know if it's constitutional, though. So I think it's yeah. better if they just, you know, we gently nudge them to own only mutual funds and index funds, number one. And number two, we require them to have the same stock disclosures as members of Congress, which is 45 days after a purchase or a sale, you have to file a report nowadays if you're a judge you file a report once a year that may take 3 years to come out so just making mm-hmm. those requirements more consistent i think that's how you would solve these issues so so ending judicial supremacy focusing on congress i think are really the ways to to make a dent in this and you know just learning more about who your local federal judges are because a lot of people just don't know who you know i'm sitting in brooklyn i'm in the eastern district in new york like who are the what are the cases going through the Eastern District? Who are the judges? What, where are they from? Did they file their disclosures? What stocks did they own? When was the last time they were flown to Australia on a junket? That sort of thing.
1: You've given us some. You've given me something to Google, first and foremost, because I have zero idea. I didn't even know that Boston was the head of the, yeah, the First, yeah, first Circuit, seat. living right here. So. And that's the
0: thing. Most cases don't reach the Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court gets yeah. 60 or 70 cases a year. There are hundreds of thousands of cases in the rest of the federal judiciary that that we don't even hear about.
1: All right, man. Well, thank you for spending this time course, with me. pleasure. Yeah. I'd also like to just give a nod to the fact that we have a newborn baby and a puppy, both who have remained 100% silent. Yeah. So- Uh, may you see more of that game i think
0: i might have i might have lulled her to sleep with my hyper-technical dissertation on the state of the federal judiciary she tends to sleep through that
1: i hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did please leave it a review and if you did not keep it our little secret nobody likes a hater You can learn more about Gabe's organization at FixTheCourt.com. That is spelled just like it sounds. Now, aside from the lack of oversight over the judiciary branch, the biggest takeaway from this conversation for me was Gabe's assertion that the court is merely a part of the larger conversation that is American democracy. And The idea of the court being the final arbiter of constitutional law is a rather modern interpretation of the body, and it runs against two centuries of conflicting precedents set forth by it. You can just take Plessy versus Ferguson, which codified the idea of racially segregated institutions, and Brown versus the Board of Education, which shot that idea down. This is actually one of the first ideas we explored on YDHTY way back in episode nine. I would encourage you to check it out if you're interested, and something I was pretty psyched to dig into. So, we will be exploring more of that in this series. Stay tuned. As always, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye bye.